This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. I want you to go with me, if you would please, into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse number 1. And if you have already done some homework and looked ahead into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you know that this is a challenging chapter. In fact, I think the chapter that we looked at this morning concerning Saul and his uh, visit to uh, this woman who we... Uh, term the witch of Endor. I, I think that's a that's a difficult chapter for us to 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 get a hold of all of that. As we come to First Corinthians chapter number seven, I think we have a difficult chapter here in 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 understanding exactly what it is that the Holy Spirit is communicating uh, through His apostle, the Apostle Paul, uh, as he answers questions concerning uh, marriage and singleness. And uh, there's some social issues interwoven uh, in this seventh chapter. And it's the, the task of the preacher, the task of the teacher, the task of the Bible student to read the text and to uh, understand with the help of the Holy Ghost who reveals to us the truth of God's Word uh, what it is that God is saying. We need to understand who he said it to. This is primarily written to the Corinthians, but it is also to all of God's people. It was written in a particular time, and there was a particular context that the Corinthian church was living in. There were issues in that church, as we have noted as we studied this passage. There uh, were also issues in that culture, and now you bring marriages into it, and there are issues with the couples and with the singles within the church. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 7 begins with this statement. Look at it, if you would, please, in verse number 1. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless to avoid, uh, to avoid rather fornication. Let every man leave his own wife let every man have his own wife. Boy, I better get that right. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> yes, you see, I've already gotten myself in big trouble, right? <laughs> let every man have his own wife. And let every woman have her own husband. You see how Paul begins this. He says, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. We have Paul's response, but we don't have their requests. We don't have their questions. And so we know that Paul is answering their questions, their concerns. And he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This means not simply to touch, but to be involved in a physical, intimate relationship. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, and we noted 
uh, when we last looked at 1 Corinthians, we noted that we are to flee fornication. He said, but here to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. Verse 3, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontency. But I speak this by permission, not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and the other after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word this evening. We pray that you would guide us, that you would speak to us, that your word would quicken us and that we would receive its truths, that you would help those who are married and those who are single as we approach this subject. Bless our homes in this church. Bless our young people as they seek to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message this evening is Questions Concerning Marriage. We are not going to cover this entire chapter. There's no way. In fact, we're only going to try to cover this evening the first nine verses, which are the verses that we read together. There are questions here that the church has concerning marriage. Now, we'll look at three headings. Number one, we'll just use one word for each. Number one is confusion. Confusion. Paul was writing to a church who was confused about the matter of singleness and marriage, about the matter of physical union between a husband and wife, and so there was confusion. Secondly, the second word that we'll look at is clarity. In the midst of the confusion, Paul gives clarity. And then thirdly, uh, we'll see counsel. What advice Uh, did the Apostle Paul give to those who were single? And uh, later we'll see what advice he gives to those who are married. Uh, Now, let's go back to the first thought then, and that is confusion. And I want to encourage you to stay with me because there's a little bit of background that we need to give if we're going to have a full understanding of this seventh chapter. Let's look at it again. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read just the first two verses. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Uh, We find here that the Corinthian church is confused about the matter of singleness, about the matter of marriage, and about the matter of of the physical, intimate relationship between a man and a woman, what arena, uh, what context that is to take place in. There are two major factors that contributed to their confusion about these sexual relationships and marriage. Those are in two categories. Number one, corrupt teaching. Number two, cultural trends. 
First of all, let's look at the corrupt teaching. John Phillips defines these philosophies of corrupt teaching this way. There are two forms of corrupt teaching. Number one, there is something called asceticism. Asceticism. Number two, there's something called antinomianism. Now, I know these are big words. Let me explain what they mean. You see, Phillips writes, some had ascetic tendencies and were inclined to regard marriage as a form of defilement. In other words, there were those in the church who had had uh, been uh, taught, their minds had been corrupted by Gnosticism and false doctrine, and they embraced something called asceticism. And asceticism teaches that physical contact, that matter is evil, and for a man and a woman to come together, even in the context of the marital relationship, uh, is a sin. And so their answer to that is that if they were married, they would separate, they would not come together in any physical union, and if they were single, that they would remain celibate, and they believed that this is what they should do, and they believed it because of false teachers. The second false teaching uh, that Phillips mentions here is antinomianism. And antinomianism subscribes to the thought that you have liberty in Christ, and therefore, if you have a natural desire, remember what Paul's words in the last chapter, meats for the belly, the belly for meats. That was their philosophy. If it's something that you naturally desire, go ahead and fulfill that natural desire. If that includes, of course, the sexual desire then go ahead and fulfill that any way you wish with anyone you wish. This was the trend of the culture. And it coupled with this corrupt teaching of antinomianism says because you have liberty, therefore you can live a lascivious lifestyle. The word lascivious means to be unbridled, unrestrained. Anything goes. Does that sound familiar in any way to our culture today? Absolutely it does. And so they believe that the natural desire for sexual fulfillment and the grace they had received from the Lord gave them license to commit sexual sin. And so, as we noted earlier in our study, fornication and adultery were pervasive practices in Corinth. So the two reasons for this confusion, number one, corrupt teachers asceticism. There can be no physical intimacy. There can be no union between a man and a woman because it's sinful. Everyone must remain celibate. That's what was being taught on one hand. On the other, no, that's not true. You can do anything you want, fulfill any desire that you have any way that you wish. So corrupt teachers contributed to this confusion. A second thing was the cultural trends of Corinth, the cultural trends. What was happening in the world in which they lived? Well, as we've already noted, immorality was pervasive. As we noted earlier, there was a great temple there to a Corinthian goddess, and as part of the worship of that Corinthian goddess, prostitutes uh, serviced those who came 
to the temple, and in their uh, idolatrous acts of worship, they participated in wickedness and immorality. This is what they were used to. This is what they were saved from. This is what they knew. You see, they were living in a world that was confused and a world that was corrupted by immorality. And we are living in that same world today, are we not? And our children are growing up in that world. Now, as we noted last time, there were three things that we noted in chapter number 6, verses 18, uh, verses uh, 12 through 20, actually, uh, concerning fornication. We noted, number one, that it is a deceptive sin. It deceives those who participate in it. They thought because it was culturally acceptable uh, to commit fornication and adultery, uh, as America thinks it is that it was okay. But Paul said, no, it's not profitable. It's not good for you. Uh, Secondly, uh, they thought that they had a license to commit such a sin because even if it was a sin, God, by his grace, would forgive them. And, of course, God does forgive us according to his grace. But God does not give us license, therefore, to sin. Paul said, if we have grace... Does that mean that uh, we should go out and sin and and try to use up that grace? No, no. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So fornication is a deceptive sin. Fornication, as we learned last time, is a desecrating sin. As believers, we are members of Christ's body, and when the bodies of men and women come together, they are joined together and made one flesh. And he gives the illustration of a man who is joined to a harlot. And he says, you have joined the body of Christ, you have joined Christ to a harlot. That is a desecrating act. And then we saw that fornication is a distinct sin, and it's distinct in two ways. It is a sin against one's own body, and it is a sin against the Holy Spirit. So the cultural trends coupled with corrupt teaching produced confusion. Now, John MacArthur in his commentary on 1 Corinthians gives us a perspective on marriage as it was practiced in that day. And there were four types of marriage in that day. Let me just give them to you quickly as I can, and maybe it will help you to understand how the culture as a whole viewed marriage. Now, approximately 30% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. This slavery, as I've mentioned to you on occasion, uh, was not based on racial lines. It was not based along racial lines. There were people from all different ethnicities who were slaves and servants. Slaves were generally considered to be subhuman property. If a man and a woman slave wanted to be married, they might be allowed to live together in what was called a, cont- uh, let me try to pronounce this, contubernium. Uh, it's a Latin word that I'm not really pronouncing very well. And it doesn't matter because most of you don't have your pen in hand and aren't writing it down. Contubernium. What does it mean? It means a tent companionship. 
It was a companionship between two slaves, or it could have been a companionship between a slave and a free person. The arrangement lasted only as long as the owner of the slave permitted. He was perfectly free as the owner to separate them, to arrange for other partners, or to sell one or the other. Many of the early Christians were slaves. If you read Paul's letters, you find him writing not only to the masters, but also to the slaves. So imagine there were Christians who were slaves who were involved in these marriage relationships, and they were at the mercy of their masters. There was a second type of marriage called an usus, U-S-U-S. It was a form of common law marriage that recognized a couple to be husband and wife after they had lived together for a year. So we've used the term now cohabitating. That's a popular term in our country. That's people who are living together uh, who have not come together in marriage. They've not entered into that covenant. And so if they were living together for more than a year, they were recognized as a common law marriage. A third type is something called cumptio manum, which uh, uh, is really a father who would sell his daughter to a prospective husband. Now, how would you like that, girls? Uh, your father, he uses you as a bargaining chip, and uh, he, he sells you to the highest bidder. Now, that happens all across the world today. Did you know that? All across the world, that happens. There was a fourth type of marriage, and it was much more elevated. It was among what was known as the patrician class or the nobility, they were married in a service. You'll, you'll, you'll find this familiar to you. They were married in a service called the uh, Conferatio, on which the modern Christian marriage ceremony is based. It was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church and used with certain Christian modifications, coming with little change into Protestantism through the Reformation. The original ceremony involved participation by both families in the arrangements for the wedding, a matron to accompany the bride and a man to accompany the groom, exchanging of vows, the wearing of a veil by the bride, the giving of a ring placed on the third finger on the left hand, a bridal bouquet, and a wedding cake. And so that sounds very similar to what we're doing right here in the United States and what we do in 21st century America. So there were four different types of marriages, and Paul is writing to Christians who could have been involved in any of these different types of marriages. It sounds quite confusing, does it not? Just as our world is confused about the matter of human sexuality, gender, marriage, family, so too was the Corinthian culture and the church at Corinth. Uh, MacArthur goes on to write this. Let me just read it to you. In the Roman Empire of Paul's days, divorce was common, even among those married under the conferatio. It was not impossible for men and women to have been married 20 times or more. An active and vocal feminist movement had also developed. Some wives competed with their husbands in business and even in feats of physical strength. Many were not interested in being housewives and mothers, and by the end of the first century, childless marriages were common. Both men and women were determined to live their own lives regardless of marriage vows or commitments. 
And then he summarizes. The early church had members that had lived together and were still living together under all four marriage arrangements. It also had some believers that had gotten the notion that being single and celibate was more spiritual than being married. And remember the Corinthians, they like to compare themselves with themselves. They, they sought to be the most prominent spiritual members of the church. He said they disparaged marriage entirely. So there were people in the church who embraced this asceticism who said, if you want to be right with God, you can't be married. Confusing, isn't it? He goes on to write, perhaps someone was teaching, and they were, that physical relationships and intimacy were unspiritual and should be altogether forsaken. The situation was difficult and perplexing even for mature Christians. For the immature Corinthians, it was especially confusing. The great question was, what do we do now that we're believers? Should we stay together as a husband and wife if we're both Christians? And I think this helps us gain some insight into the type of questions that Paul is responding to here in, here in chapter number 7. What do we do now? Should we stay together as husband and wife if we're both Christians? Because people are telling us it's more spiritual to be single. Should we get divorced if our spouse is an unbeliever? He's going to answer that question. Should we become or remain single? The chaos of marital possibilities posed myriad perplexities which Paul approaches in this section of the letter. So we get the picture, right? Confusion. Confusion. Well, we know that God is not the author of confusion, is he? And when you live in a society, when you live in a culture that rejects God's truth, that rejects that God is our creator and maker, that God himself designed us, that God himself uh, created the institution, ordained the institution of the home, that he designed the institution of marriage. When you forsake that, then you open yourself up to all forms of error and confusion. Well, into that confusion, Paul then gives clarity. That's number two, clarity. And we need clarity today. We need to teach our children this, and we need to model it. Uh, let me give you, before I go any further with this, let me give you five uh, biblical reasons for marriage. Five biblical reasons for marriage. And again, I'm borrowing this from John MacArthur, his New Testament commentary on 1 Corinthians. I thought this was very helpful when I came across it. There are five biblical reasons for marriage. Number one, marriage is for procreation. Procreation. That, that speaks of childbearing and childrearing. Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 28, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. God intends for mankind to, re to reproduce. And that reproduction happens in the context of home life, marital life, and those children are to be raised by a mom and by a dad. Secondly, marriage is also for pleasure. It's for pleasure. Proverbs speaks of a man being ravished with the love of the wife of his youth. 
and the Song of Solomon centers around the physical attractions and the pleasures of marital love. So marriage is for procreation, and it is for pleasure. Then thirdly, it is for partnership. It is for partnership. God made Eve, he made the woman to be an help meet for him. That means suitable for him, a companion, a partner. He took the rib of Adam, and he formed the woman. The rib speaks then of their relationship. They are alongside of one another. They are partners and companions in life. Friendship between a husband and wife is one of the key ingredients of a good marriage. Can I tell you who my best friend is? It's my wife. It's my wife. That's the way God designed this thing. We are companions in life together. This is the way God has designed it. Number three, or number four, rather, marriage is a picture of the church. Marriage is a picture of the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 32 teach us that the marriage relationship is to portray the love that Christ has for his church. The husband is to love his wife. The wife is to submit to the authority of her husband. Marriage is a picture of the church. It's a picture of God's plan of redemption. And then number five, marriage is for purity. It's for purity. It protects men and women from sexual immorality by meeting the needs of physical fulfillment. So five biblical reasons for marriage. Number one, for procreation. Number two, for pleasure. Number three, for partnership. Number four, it is a picture of the church. Number five, it is for purity. Now, Paul is bringing clarity to these questions. Now, there are two things that he brings clarity to. First of all, he brings clarity concerning marital relationships. He brings clarity concerning marital relationships. Let's look together again at verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. So we can read here the question of the ascetics into Paul's response. Uh, those who embraced asceticism, they're saying, hey, Paul, I mean, shouldn't you just tell all the members of the church of Corinth that they, they, they can't come uh, together? Men and women can, should not come together because surely uh, you understand, Paul, that that is sinful. Well, he says, well, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but in order to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So what do we learn in verses 1 and 2? Well, verses 1 and 2 reinforce the truth that sexual desire may be and may only be righteously enjoyed in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. Let every man, verse 2, have his what? Own wife. And let every woman have her what? Own husband. You see, the language of the Bible is very specific, is it not? You have your own wife. You have your own husband. So the physical union, 
the, the physical intimacy can be righteously enjoyed, but only in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. You see, marriage unites two individuals, making them one flesh. Therefore, they belong to one another. So concerning marital relationships, he gives clarity. It is not, therefore, a sin, he says, for a man and a woman to be joined together unless those two are not married. And they must be married to one another. Marriage is between one man and one woman. This is what God's plan is. Number two, concerning marital responsibilities. We see the marital relationship, one man, one wife. Now we see the marital responsibilities. And, of course, the immediate context of the question is, is it wrong for a man and woman to be joined together in physical intimacy? Verse 3, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband that hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontency. So here he says to fulfill one another, in verses 3 through 5, he speaks of the necessity of mutual submission. Husbands and wives are to be submitted one to another. Ultimately, this submission begins with their submission to God and to God's word. And then they are to submit one to another. And in particular, they are to submit their bodies one to another. It's not simply a matter then of their own choice, but also the choice of the spouse to which they belong. And to disregard this truth is to defraud, which means to unjustly hold back that which is reasonably expected. To defraud means to rob. So when one mate refuses physical intimacy with another mate or their mate, then they are guilty of defrauding one another. Now, let me say this. What he's saying here is there are those who are in the church who embrace this form of asceticism that taught that all physical unions were sinful, even between a husband and a wife. And there were those who were married who said, I'm not going to be involved with my wife. I'm not going to be involved with my husband any longer. I'm going to withdraw from that activity, and I'm going to be a more spiritual person. But Paul is correcting that teaching here. And he's saying for you to do that, for you to, to commit that act, to, to withdraw from your spouse, is to defraud them. You're holding back from them that which is to be reasonably expected. Now, how do we, what do we draw from this? Well, we, we draw from this that physical union is not something to be weaponized as a tool of revenge against a spouse, nor is it to be used as an incentive or as a reward. It is something that is to be enjoyed. It is something that is to be reasonably expected. The Bible teaches here that when you defraud your spouse in this area of your married life, you open yourself and your spouse up to 
temptation. Look at it again, verse 5. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent, if you agree upon it, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. There are examples in the Bible of this, especially when the children of Israel had come to receive the law of God. They were told not to come near their wives, but they were to consecrate themselves while they were meeting with the Lord. So there are periods of consecration where Christians can draw near to God in fastings and prayers. But then Paul quickly, he warns them to come together again that Satan tempt you not for incontency. Now, that's a lack of, of fulfillment. Now, I would say the problem in the church today is not that couples are, are withholding one from another over spiritual desire and needs, but based on bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. And the Lord says, defraud ye not one the other. Now, I can hear someone using this verse against their spouse who wants the benefit of all of the physical enjoyment of the relationship but invest nothing in the emotional nurturing that yields the physical blessings. And so we find that we're not just here as mere objects of passion. We share a life together. And when all five of these components that I gave to you earlier concerning the biblical purposes of marriage, when all five of those things are coming together, then there is a healthy outlook and a healthy enjoyment of marriage in all of those areas. So don't go home and use the Bible to bully your spouse. Why don't you go home and say, you know what? There's five areas and there's some areas I failed in and I need to fix that if I want to see blessings in other areas. So there's clarity. Are you still with me? Now, the last point is the quickest. Aren't you glad? That's counsel. Counsel. Verse 6, But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now, he's speaking here primarily giving counsel to those who have asked the question concerning should they break off, sever their physical relationship. And should single people enter into a marriage covenant, or would it be best for them to remain single? So he says, I'm speaking to you concerning this and giving you counsel. There's no command of Scripture that he can fall back on. He is giving what the Holy Spirit is revealing to him, and he is speaking to them. Now, uh, John Phillips in his commentary points out that within a few years of the writing of this letter, that Nero's persecution against the church is going to intensify to such degree that it would be far better for people not to be married but to remain single. 
And he believes this is behind some of Paul's counsel here. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think it's interesting to consider. On the other hand, <laughs> when uh, Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses, lived in a, a very difficult and tenuous time when children were uh, pronounced dead uh, at conception by uh, the Pharaoh, what did they do? They feared not the king's commandment. They didn't fear the wrath of the king, but they endured to seeing him who is invisible. They lived by faith. And I believe God is for the family. And I don't believe there's any reason for us to stop bearing children, bringing them into the world, teaching them the truth of God's word. If we're going to see uh, things turn around in our world and in our culture, then it will only be because Christian people are bringing children into the world and teaching them the truths of God's word. Now, here's his counsel. First of all, we see his reasoning concerning singleness. Verse 7, For I would that all men were even as I myself. Now, Paul was not married. Verse 8, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. In other words, he says, I'd like to see a lot of you remain single. Now, fast forward to verse 32 in chapter 7, and we understand why he's saying this. In verse 32, he said, I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belongeth to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. That's not a sinful thing, by the way. You should care for your wife and how to please her, how to take care of her, how to meet her needs. That should be, sir, the primary aim of your life, not your selfishness, but her needs. There's a difference. He says, verse 34, also between a wife and a virgin, the unmarried woman careth not for the things of the, of the Lord, or the unmarried woman careth rather. Let me get my words right. They're important. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she that is married careth for the things of the world how she may please her husband. Again, nothing sinful about that. Verse 35, and this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. Here's what he's saying. Single people can give their energies and their time to the ministry and to the work of God more so than married people because married people have a responsibility to take care of their wife and their children. And so he says, here's my reasoning concerning singleness. Then we see his recognition of differences between individuals. Not everybody is able to do this. Verse 7, the very middle part of the verse, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. In other words, some people can live this way and other people cannot. This, this principle, this truth, he says, is not for everyone. Some have an overwhelming desire to be united together in marriage. To others, they do not have that desire, and therefore they can live a single life given and dedicated to the service of the Lord. Married people together can also live a life given to the service of the Lord. So he says, 
Every man has his proper gift. So there's his recognition of individual differences. And then we see his response finally to those who desire marriage because there are those who do. Notice in verse 9, but if they cannot contain, in other words, if they cannot restrain themselves, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. What is he speaking of here when he speaks of burning? He's speaking of the desire in their hearts. In other words, if they desire to be together, if they desire to be married, it is better for them to marry than it is to burn. So he's not saying to single people, remain single no matter what. He's saying if you can and God has called you to do that, then do it because you can dedicate your life to the Lord. If you're married, there's no reason to seek singleness. Stay in your marriage, love your wife, love your husband, and serve the Lord together and protect yourself from temptation. And so we cover the first nine verses, and we're getting light into what was happening in the culture of the Corinthian church and the questions that plagued them the difficult intricacies and issues that they faced. And we understand that we're living in a time when marriage is being redefined, when the family is being redefined, when gender is being redefined, when the, the parameters of sexual behavior have been cast aside, and we're living in a culture where our children are being taught that anything goes and we are dealing not only with that false teaching and those cultural temptations, but we're dealing with our own natural lusts and desires as we walk in this wicked world. And so Paul gives us clarity, and may God give us clarity. Now, if you're a single adult here tonight, then what should you do? Well, then you should pray and seek the Lord concerning his will for your life. And then the hard thing often is to wait upon the Lord. But we find that we always get in trouble when we get ahead of him. You've heard the old saying, and it's not just cliche, it's true. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice to him. The question is, are you willing to trust him with that? Are you willing to trust him with that area of your life, and are you willing to be obedient to him in that area of your life? Married people, are you willing to obey God. You know, I think so many people have ideas concerning marriage. You know, we grow up in this culture and we, we, we buy into, we buy into the, to the uh, vision that the world has cast for us concerning marriage and, and what it should be like. And, and then we deal with our own selfishness and our own sinful tendencies and Satan builds strongholds in our mind. And, and before you know it, we're unhappy, we're unfulfilled, and, and, and things are busting apart. Do you know what we need to get back to? We need to get back to what God has said. And we need to, to, to bring our thinking into captivity. We need to bring our thinking back to God's way of thinking. And if we're going to do that, then here's what we have to do. We have to be willing to say, I may be wrong about this, and I need to submit to God's word. I need to examine my motive and my heart and my attitude and my actions, and I need to view this from God's perspective. 
And when you begin to do that, your thinking begins to change. Your behavior begins to change. And your marriage begins to change for the better. If our young people follow the pattern of this world, they're going to be unhappy, unfulfilled, most likely divorced, most likely with children, splitting time, giving themselves over to multiple people, carried, scarred with guilt and shame if they follow the line of the culture. God doesn't want that for them, does he? He wants what's best for them. He wants what's best for you. And maybe that's your story a little bit, what I've just described. Do you know that you can find grace and mercy with God? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to do what, church? To cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So may God help us concerning these questions in our marriage. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used His Word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.